0: It's a privilege to be with you again this morning. We are in 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter launched into a diatribe against false teachers. We'll not get all the way through the chapter, but it stands as one unit. And I would like to read it as one unit, so if you please turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. In your bulletin, you'll also notice sometimes... From time to time, you'll see scripture references listed. This means that these passages are to be read at some point during the message. They're placed there so that you can turn to them ahead of time, put a marker in your Bible so that you can read them with me. We'll read this morning Peter's speech regarding false prophets first Peter second Peter 2 verse 1. but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. And will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count at pleasure to carouse in the daytime. There are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children." They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. Tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. Through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed, her, uh, washed to her wallowing in the mire. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we study today, that you would open our eyes, that your Holy Spirit would guide, you would give us correct understanding, that you would make us aware of the dangers that surround us by those who uh, teach false doctrines. And Father, we um, thank you for your word, we dedicate ourselves to obeying it, and uh, Thank you for your presence among us, and and may you feel um, welcome here, and uh, may your your word be believed and obeyed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In this passage on false prophets, Peter clearly used uh, no soft words. His tone is not loving. Not in the sense of what our culture considers loving. There was no statement by Peter that, oh, I just feel sympathy for them, or I think they mean well, or, well, at least they're part of the church. No statements like that came from him. Instead, he called them brute beasts made to be destroyed, spots and blemishes, accursed children, and dogs returning to vomit. I found myself wondering, as I studied, if if I wondered if Peter felt better after this diatribe. Uh, I admire Peter for being so bold and. Sometimes I wish I was as bold as he was. But maybe I don't have to be, since Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already said these words. You can understand Peter's fury. These false prophets were leading people to destruction, verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways, and, and seemingly they were the cause of some people being damned to hell. Verse 18, for when they speak great, swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. There is no way that a good pastor, a good Christian, can in good conscience shrug their shoulders when the sheep are being scattered and destroyed by false teachers. Hence, Peter's vitriol. I have no idea why in churches in America we pay so little attention to these destructive people. Condemnation of false prophets and false teachers is all over the Bible. Now, the Bible was not written with chapter and verse divisions. The New Testament was divided into chapters and verses only about 600 years ago. Now, if we read the last verse of chapter 1 and immediately continue with verse 1 of chapter 2, it sounds this way. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false, false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Whenever there are true prophets... Preaching God's word, there will be counterfeits. Jesus told a parable about this, and this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And now you're in Matthew 13, if you would um, follow along with me, starting at verse 24 another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field but while men slept his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop then the tares also appeared so the servants of the owner came and said to him sir did you not sow good seed in your field how then does it have tares he said to them an enemy has done this the servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, the weeds, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. But then skip down to Verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, "'Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field.' He answered and said to them, "'He who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels.' Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Always and forever, until Jesus returns, the devil will plant tares among the wheat, the most destructive of the of the terrors planted among the wheat are those who are in churches who identify as believers, who sound convincing, who use spiritual language, but who subtly teach heresy. The worst of false teachers are pastors. False teaching is so prevalent today that all of you have been exposed to it. And often, we are fascinated, to some degree, by their teaching. See, false prophets thrive by appealing to what we want to be true. They appeal to what we desire to be the truth. They soften the hard messages of the Bible. They'll teach, for example, that hell is not real or that hell is not eternal I would love to believe that would you none of us want to think about our unsaved friends being an eternal torment therefore people will flock to hear the teaching that hell is an allegory or that hell is temporary false prophets find a way to contradict the Bible at the point where scriptures and messages are difficult to hear in place of scripture. They'll advocate your internal experience. Your feelings become important. Your musings become more important. Your, your logic becomes important. False teachers advocate for the spiritualization of your thoughts and your emotions of putting them on the level with scripture or above the level of the revealed word of God. All right. What is the method of false prophets? Secret heresy. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. False teaching, truth twisted. Now, there's nothing in scripture that will ever indicate that false prophets are stupid. The sheep, sometimes we, the people, Christians, religious people, sometimes are stupid, but false prophets are not. They're smart enough to produce a bill of goods that are readily swallowed by the people. In order to to sell their false bill of goods, they have to operate secretly, subtly, not secretly as in, you know, the underground church. In that sense they operate right out in the open. They're operating in mega churches and uh, many other churches. They're they're a secret in that the heresy, the false teaching is difficult to de- detect. It's subtle. It's most often in hit it's most often hidden in religious and biblical wording. They use Words like love and mercy and justice and forgiveness and salvation, but they remove the biblical meaning of these words and redefine, redefine the terminology. Love is a prime example of how false prophets work. Love to a false prophet means I tell you whatever you want to hear. You want to have sex before marriage? Well, God loves you, my friend. You want to be bisexual? Well, my friend, just know that God loves you, and we don't judge you. We accept you as you are. True biblical love warns people about their sin. It's not in any way loving to allow people walk the road that leads to hell without warning them to repent. The false prophet kind of love tells people don't worry, you perhaps don't have anything to repent from. It'll all work out in the end. People love that message. Many will follow their teaching. Now, the ultimate heresy, according to people, uh, Peter, verse 1, is to deny, to deny the Lord who bought them false prophets end up undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus died and he was buried in order to carry the punishment of our sins then he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death and that through repentance and faith in Jesus' substitutionary death we can be reconciled to God any path to salvation, any supposed path to salvation that does not include the sacrificial death of Jesus, repentance from sins, from all sins listed in the Bible, any path to salvation that bypasses that is a false teaching. God loves you, my friend. He'll never send anyone to hell. Don't worry so much about sin as defined in the Bible. Everything will be okay. They won't say those words per se, but that's the general message. What motivates false prophets? We'll take a quick trip through chapter 2, and we'll find three motives that keep popping up. The first is sexual indulgence. passage in front of you let's look for the references to sexual indulgence first is the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah verses 6 through 8 In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes God condemned them to destruction making them an, exa- uh, them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So the incident from Sodom and Gomorrah is recorded in Genesis 19. We won't uh, look there today. As I think you know, that the primary sin depicted in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual sin. The men of the cities wanted to have sexual relationships with the two angels that accompanied Lot into the city. In verse 7, the word filthy conduct in Hebrew means lasciviousness. So the unlawful deeds of verse 8 refer to the sexual acts depicted in Genesis 19, particu- particularly homosexuality. <clears throat> A second reference to sexual indulgence is found in verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin and enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. False prophets are always seeking opportunities for adultery. They have a particular knack for finding vulnerable women, and sometimes men, but more often women. And Peter notes that they can't cease from their sin. They're unable their desire for sexual indulgence is obsessive. It's, it's perpetual. It's, uh, it's an animal-level uh, instinct that they're unable to control. The third reference to sexual sin is verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in Error. The word lewdness means sexual license uh, or licentiousness. Uh, So in churches where false prophets are finally outed, and you hear the stories of them, very often what is uncovered is a pattern of adultery and sometimes a pattern of sexual abuse against victims who are unable to protect themselves. And it is true that real men of God can fall into sexual sin, like King David. But false prophets are different in that they start out with the motive of sexual gratification. Their eyes were full of adultery. They were looking for unstable souls to entice into sexual relationships. And unfortunately, sometimes they're not that difficult to find. Now, you'll note that I classified this under the lust of the flesh, but I'll get back to that a little bit later and and explain that a bit more. Another motive of false prophets, profiteering, verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. Now, this happens every day in real life in America. You may be familiar with the concept of Seed money, $1,000 seed money for the kingdom of God. A prosperity gospel preacher challenges people if they give $1,000 to the kingdom of God, that is, give $1,000 to me and my church, God will return the $1,000 to them and more. After all, it's a seed. So if you plant a seed of $1,000, what should you reap in return? 30000 a 60000 100000 The second warning of profiteering is in verses 15 and 16. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. The heir of Balaam was his greed. Balak, the king of Moab, had heard how the Israelites were moving up from Egypt and how they had overcome the Amorites, and he was afraid. So he hired Balaam, a notable magician-sorcerer, to curse the Israelites, thinking this was a way to weaken and then defeat the Jewish nation. The Lord met Balaam, uh, told Balaam not to go, but Balaam, attracted by the money, continued mulling the offer the offer made by Balak and the Moabites, and he eventually he took up their offer. In the little book of Jude, which has a lot of similarities to Second Peter, we read this in verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. So I don't need to spend any time convincing you that there are ministers who are primarily seeking profit. When a person wants to get rich within the religious scene, he is wise to preach false doctrine. If your motive is to get rich, you're wise to preach false doctrine because the promises of false teachers are easier on the ears than Bible teaching. That's confirmed by the words of Jesus about the wide and narrow gates. Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Men and women trying to get rich in the pulpit don't teach the hard truths of Scripture. They tell people what they want to hear. The third motive of false prophets is power and position. Power and position. uh, First verses 10 through 12. Especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness in despise authority they are presumptuous self-willed they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand false witnesses despise authority because they see themselves as the authority. They aspire to be the authority. They're boastful, arrogant people with swollen self-perception. They use their pulpit to denigrate the real authorities in, in an effort to elevate themselves. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, which even angels are careful not to revile clawing their way up to power and position and prestige and fame they speak evil of things and of people that they don't understand I shudder when I hear pastors say something like uh, we're going to praise the Lord and send Satan running out of the building today or join me in booing the devil That is foolhardy. The devil is not intimidated by such tactics. you are just inviting the wrath of the devil. Okay, a second passage regarding the desire for power and position is uh, uh, verses 18 and 19. For when they speak great, swelling, words of emptiness... They allure through lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption for by whom a person is overcome. By him also he is brought into bondage. They speak great swelling words promising people liberty. Just listen to me. I'm the great liberator. I'm the way to your best life now. The desire for pride and position and fame and ad- admiration comes from the pride of life. Now, a bit more about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are identified in 1 John two fifteen and 16. Do not love the world, said John, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world as defined here by John is all the lusts and all the desires and all the temptations that are contrary to the kingdom of God. John said we can simplify everything that's sinful, and contrary to righteousness, we can simplify it down to three categories. The lusts of the flesh are desires immediately tied to our bodies. There are, of course, legitimate bodily desires. Hunger, for example, we're, we're made to exist on food and to enjoy food is a, is a good and uh, right thing. The lust of the flesh is taking these bodily desires and making them idols, or it's the desire to satisfy them in sinful ways, in illegitimate ways. It's seeking the pleasure of the body in wrong ways. Examples would be alcoholism and drugs, gluttony, and of course, sexual perversions now profiteering the desire for money is not part of the lust of the flesh but it's the lust of the eyes our physical bodies don't crave money our bodies have no use for green bills that say a hundred dollars on them our bodies don't need it but our eyes want it our eyes love them the lust of the eyes is the desire to own. It's, it's materialism. It's the desire for a large bank account, for a big house, for expensive cars, for wealth. It's the desire to find beauty and fulfillment through glittery, um, extravagant things. False prophets use their hearers to get rich, to build their collection of boats and cars and houses and, and private jets. Then there is the third one, the pride of life, ego. Ego would be a good word for this. Pride of life refers to position and power and prestige and reputation. Look at me. I'm on TV. Uh, I'm on 100 radio stations. Everyone knows my name. People speak well of me. I'm famous. The false prophets are motivated by sex, lust of the flesh. They're motivated by money lust of the eyes, they're motivated by power and prestige and position, the pride of life. In other words, false prophets fall for the same temptations as the rest of the world. Sex, money, power. Think about advertising that you see. You ever see any evidence that sexuality is used to sell products? Do you see any evidence that money and and wealth are used to sell products? Do you see any evidence that power and prestige are used to sell products. So if you see a man or a woman presenting themselves as a minister of God, but you see signs that they're sensual or greedy or egotistical, you should have a check in your soul that says this could be, this could be a false prophet. All right, the impact of false prophets. We're back to verse 1 now, right at the very end of verse 1, where it says, uh, and bring on themselves. So you can follow along with me, and we'll read verses 2 and 3. And bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Widespread destruction is the impact of false prophets. Uh, First of all, they cause their own destruction, verse 1. They bring on themselves swift destruction, verse 3. Their destruction does not slumber. Unfortunately, the false prophets are not alone in their demise. They take others down with them, verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways. And by verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. And in addition to false prophets being destroyed, along with their followers being destroyed, you have the way of truth being blasphemed in verse 2. The way of truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In their desire to get money and to be popular and have a reputation, false prophets turn people away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the one true source of salvation, and they'll turn people to false hopes. People are turned to the false hope that they can earn salvation. You'll remember the Roman Catholic Church many centuries ago sold indulgences, indulgences supposedly took away or at least reduced the penalty people would pay for their sins that's a clear case of false teaching give us money and we'll forgive your sins the promises of today's false teachers are more subtle than that but they still lead away from the one and only hope for the sinner repentance from sins faith in the lord jesus christ Now in the next section of the chapter Peter talked about the imminent destruction of the false prophets and he gave three examples of how God punished evil in the old world. First of all angels in verse 4 if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So Peter talked about the fallen angels. It's foolish to think that God would ignore the destruction of false prophets if he already severely punished his own angels who went astray. Uh, as in a lot of Peter's writing, and, and partly what makes his writing interesting, is uh, the details of what he's referring to are a, are a bit ambiguous. they It um, brings up a lot of uh, of things that that uh, are controversial with theologians trying to understand what he was referring to there's two primary events that Peter could be referring to the fall of Satan with his angels or the Nephilim of Genesis 6 the fall of Satan is described in Isaiah 14 and then by Jesus in Luke 10 18 I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven Satan himself was an angel a very powerful angel Uh, until iniquity was found in him, specifically speaking, he had the desire to overthrow God. In that rebellion, it's apparent that about one-third of the angels sinned and joined Lucifer in the rebellion. Uh, However, not all of those angels were immediately confined to hell. As you see in the text, chained. And so, Maybe some of them were, but it's, it's a little difficult to uh, say that all of those angels were immediately confined to hell because they were out and about in the days of Jesus. Jesus cast them out, uh, demons out, and they remain around in the world today. For that reason, some people believe Peter was referring to a time immediately before the flood of Noah when the sons of God, it says in Genesis 6-2, uh, took wives from the children of men. Many people believe that the sons of God were fallen angels that interbred with the human race and created what are called the Nephilim, or whichever you want to think Peter referenced. His point was that God always judges evil. Even angels who are superior in creation to us are under God's judgment when they sin. a the second Example from the old world, the flood, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So the world prior to Noah's flood had become more and more wicked until we read in Genesis 6 this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, the choice to include this story in Peter's uh, examples of how the Lord will always judge evil I find interesting in light of the words that Peter used back in verse 1. They bring on themselves swift destruction. And in verse 3, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Now, if you'd read those two statements, you you might be led to believe that the false prophets can can only last a week or maybe a month, you know, because uh, they're under swift destruction. You know that that's not true, and you know that false prophets have been at their trade for years and decades, and some of them succeeding quite well, right? Now, one problem for us as believers one one discouraging thing for us as believers is that God has such patience when when dealing with the wicked. This truth, that God doesn't immediately judge the wicked, nearly drove the psalmist Asaph from his faith. In Psalm 73, Asaph said, But for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps, steps had nearly slipped. What's wrong, Asaph? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And Asaph was offended. Here he is, a poor, suffering man trying every day to follow God. And and over there were the evil succeeding and rich. But this is the state in which we see false prophets. We see prosperity gospel proponents with millions of dollars, more than they can use, and getting richer every day. So Peter did not mean in verses 1 and 3 about swift destruction, that false teachers would fall under immediate judgment of God. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For many years he built the ark. And between his hammer blows on the ark, Noah was warning the people. Won't you prepare yourself? Won't you come on the ark with me? God is going to destroy the world depending on who you ask. Noah was building the ark for 50, maybe to 120 years. Even if we take the lower estimate of 50 years, that's a very long time that God put up with people whose every intent of the heart was wicked all the time. Peter knew he was addressing people who would observe wicked, false prophets Prospering for many years. You've also observed very wicked people prospering while they cause great destruction and great harm around them. And sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God stop it? And Peter said, God will stop it, but not on our timetable. So how should we explain Peter's statement that false prophets' destruction is swift? Swift. Well, maybe it's swift when it comes. At least a partial answer is found in 2 Peter 3, if you turn over a page. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The destruction of the wicked is happening on God's timetable. His timetable seems slow to us. But the reason is that God is waiting, waiting, waiting patiently for people to to repent and trust in Jesus Christ and and avoid destruction. And seemingly, he waits even for the false prophets. All right. The thirdly is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So according to Peter, Sodom and Gomorrah were turned into ashes as a warning to people who would otherwise live ungodly lives. Unfortunately, our world is so biblically illiterate that few people know the warning and fewer, fewer people heed it. All right, what should we take away from this passage? First of all, I think we should take away that false prophets are prominent. Don't think that you will walk through your life without ever coming in contact with false teaching. Be ready for it. And so second thing to take away, evaluate every preacher and every minister, including this one. And in order to do that, you have to know your scripture. Like the Bereans, of whom we read in Acts 17.11, these, the Bereans, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word, the preaching of Paul, with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So Paul went into Berea, and the people listened, but they got out their scriptures. Is this really true? And was Paul offended? Why don't they just believe me? No, he wasn't offended at all. Paul was thankful. Ah, here's some people that are actually care about the Bible, and they'll take what I said, and they'll go to scriptures, and they will... Compare what I said to the scriptures and see if it's true. And lastly for today, embrace, embrace the hard teachings of Scripture. I, I love the Bible, but and you do too. You wouldn't be here if you didn't love the Bible, but there are hard things in Scripture. There are are some things that are hard to hear. Do you like to hear that everyone who aspires to live godly will suffer persecution? Do you like that? Do you like that message? Embrace the hard teachings of Scripture because it will be very easy for you to begin to compromise on those hard messages of Scripture and, and then you will gravitate towards somebody who softens them up a little bit, and the next thing you know, you'll be, you'll be imbibing false teachings. Embrace the hard teachings of Scripture. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We thank you today for Scripture. We thank you for the honesty of Peter. Uh, we thank you for his. Um, Father, for, for the way in which he spoke so frankly and his fervence, fervency and the way that he gave his warnings in such a, such a clear way. And uh, Father, as we continue to worship this morning, help us to always search the scriptures and trust them even when the message that they give to us is, is a difficult message to hear. Father, we ask you to be with us as we continue to worship this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.